waters rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. you've been with us in our community, you may know that we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians over the last couple of months, and we'll continue that. But today, we are taking a short break uh, because we have a guest preacher among us, and it's a joy to introduce to you um, our preacher, uh, Andrew Russell, who has preached here before, and so some of you may know him. He's currently a pastoral fellow at our uh, sibling congregation, Grace Downtown, and was recently called to be their newest assistant pastor, um, and so it's a joy to see the Russell family uh, deepening their roots and continuing their, their forever future, right, uh, with us here in D.C., and we're so grateful um, to uh, have Andrew and his gifts and his faith and his love here today uh, it, uh, to be given to you, given to us, and so excited uh, to receive from him. Andrew um, uh, came to the district a couple of uh, years ago, and uh, as you may know, also has a background in music. And so, if you want to enjoy his musical gifts, you can uh, look up uh, shameless plug, right? I mean, hey, man, you got something to, you know, like uh, an EP and something that you could share with, right? Uh, uh, so, it would be a, a fun thing for you to also enjoy uh, that side of him, um, not only his preaching gifts. His family originally hails from. Uh, the Bahamas, and I don't know if we have any Bahamian brothers and sisters here today, but it's a joy uh, to have the, the wondrous person that you are, brother, and the story that he's weaved in you over all these years, and for us to benefit from that. And so let's together uh, welcome our brother, Andrew Russell. Oh, wow. Good morning, good morning. How are y'all doing today? Got to put my stopwatch on, make sure I'm on time here. Again, my name is Andrew Russell, uh, pastoral fellow for Grace Downtown. It is a joy to be with you this morning. So let's pray as we look into our topic of worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, oh God, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. That your Holy Spirit, oh God, might speak to us might not only convict us, but Father, encourage us and speak life to us. Father, I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, yes, I'm, I'm over the worship at Grace Downtown. And, you know, being a worship leader, you, you see everything. You see people, uh, you know, sleeping or <laughs> see people clapping or no clapping. 
You know, I've led worship in a traditional hymns-only organ with the choir in the background. I've also led contemporary worship. And so I've sat in many worship services. And I've seen, like I said, people clap and sway and jump, and sometimes all at the same time. (laughs) And like you, I wondered, how is this possible, right? I've also been in worship services where, like I said earlier, people would sleep and and people would snore so loudly you would hear them in the balcony. (laughs) And so for many people, Sunday worship services are the best sleep of their week. (laughs) And so here's my charge to you this morning. Whether you listen, whether you say amen or sleep, do all to the glory of God. (laughs) But please don't sleep. If you see a neighbor sleeping, just nudge them and say, wake up, Jesus is coming. (laughs) So the title of my worship, uh, the title of my sermon today is A Worship That Moves You. Have you ever been moved in a worship service? Have you or are you searching for something or someone to move you in a way that causes you to come alive and everything makes sense? You know, we feel, we all feel this at some level, right? We all want to be in the presence of a person who meets our every desire, who, we, we, who, who thinks that we're special and attractive and beautiful and unique in the most exciting of ways, who accepts us even at our worst, someone or something that inspires us to achieve feats beyond our current capacity. You see, we all long to worship. We long to give our lives to something and someone greater than us so that perhaps that thing or person might respond to us, draw us near and embrace us like a loving parent or a best friend. You see, this, this is the heart of worship. It is connection. It is friendship. It's acceptance. It's identity meaning, and love. We worship what we love so that the thing we worship might love us back. This is why worship is so important. It it draws us out of isolation into a relationship, the kind of relationship that moves you and gives you life. This is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the kind of worship that sees you in your loneliness and brings you into community. The kind, the best type of community, you know, that the most vibrant, life-giving, can't breathe because you can't stop laughing community. When was the last time you laughed and couldn't, you know, you know, you know that good laugh where you laugh so hard you can hardly breathe? That's the community that, that God wants to bring you in. God is the one person that we long for. We search for him in every relationship. We listen for him in our favorite songs, and we look for him in the beauty around us. We want to worship God, and we don't even know it. We seek, God for, we seek for God in our blindness for things that give the appearance of God. But at the end of the day, those things isolate us and eventually destroy us. You see, true worship. It brings you into the most loving relationship the world has ever known. Romeo and Juliet cannot fathom a relationship that God wants to have with us. God wants a relationship with you, a relationship that brings you out of isolation and makes you known. 
You see, biblical worship brings you into, the, into communion with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and his Holy Spirit. And it is not solely an isolated experience. It is most realized in community with other people. Just like a fork was never meant to be a spoon. Now, I know, you know, these, some restaurants, they, they, have the, they have the audacity to make these fork spoons. What do, what do you call those things? Spork? A spork? Or foons? I don't, I don't know what. It's not right. But that's, that's another sermon. Biblical worship. The worship of God and God alone is meant to be in community with other people. And I'm saying this over and over again because only then will we truly see ourselves as we were meant to be seen. Worthy of divine love. You were meant to be accepted and brought into friendship. But this type of worship must have its proper place and focus. So let's talk about it. Now I've said the word worship a lot of times and I'm assuming that we all have the same definition. And so for the sake of this sermon, I want to define what worship is. So there are several words for worship used in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the most common word for worship is shakah, which means uh, a bowing down uh, or to do homage. The most common word for worship in the New Testament is what? Who knows it? Proskuneo. Have you ever heard that? Proskuneo. Some of you, yeah, okay, all right, not all of us, but it's all good. Pros means near or to or to, toward, and cuneo literally means kiss. And so proskuneo literally means to kiss toward. And in the ancient Greek culture, proskuneo was frequently used to, des to designate the custom of prostrating oneself, to bowing oneself down before persons and kissing their feet or the hem of their garment, or even the ground. The Persians did this in the presence of their deified kings, and the Greeks did this in the presence of something holy. It expresses an attitude or gesture of one's complete dependence on or submission to a higher authority figure. So when you think about the word worship in the Bible, worship meanings to... to, 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 uh, to Give yourself completely over independence to submit to a higher authority, to, to prostrate yourself down, to kiss the feet of. Biblical worship, this is, this is our response to who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. And not only our response to God, but more specifically, our response to God's self-revelation. Biblical worship is the response to God's self-revelation, and it can be in a variety of ways. You know, a lot of times when we think of worship, some people think worship is reverence, or worship is awe, or stillness, or worship is, is praise, and singing, and dancing, or sacrifice. All of these things are an expression of that one word, worship. But worship is initiated by God through his self-revelation, and it is sustained by his presence, and his end goal is his glory. We can't worship God until he reveals himself to us. Otherwise, we're worshiping our idea of God. You see, God has revealed himself through creation and more specifically through his holy word. His word is the lens by which we can view and see all of creation. Biblical worship, it starts with God, it ends with God, but it involves you and I, all of us, are a part 
of worship. And, and this is a, a transformative experience. James K.A. Smith, who's an author and educator, speaks about the transforming power of worship. He says, we worship what we love, and what we love shapes us. This idea comes from St. Augustine or St. Augustine. I always, anytime I see St. Augustine or Augustine, it's like tomato or tomato. Which one is it? Is it St. Augustine or is it St. Augustine? You, both. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I, I feel so free right now. So St. Augustine, who said that we are what we love, and Smith responds, he says, the Augustinian point is that you are defined by what you love. It's your love that governs your actions and pursuits. It's, 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 it, indeed, you are more defined by what you love than what you think, than what you know, or what you believe. Isn't that a powerful statement? He says that's, that's the Augustinian edge to the argument that pushes back on some of our more rationalist assumptions. Consequently, biblical worship is formative. It's formative in us understanding the story of God redeeming a people who were not a people. This formation engages not only the mind and heart, but it engages the body. There is a physical response to the revelation of God. The earth and heavens recognize this, and we read it in Psalm 97, and I'll read some more of it again. It says, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. That's a, that's a physical response. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. That's, that's a physical response. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. You see, if you are in the heavens, there is no such thing as a private praise. You must declare his glory to the nations, to the world, to anyone that might look upon you. You're declaring God's glory. So to be in the presence of the Lord, we, we see this reference of fire all throughout scripture that God is a consuming fire, it says in the book of Hebrews. So to be in the presence of the Lord is to, to be in the presence of fire itself. Moses experienced this when God spoke to him through the burning bush. The children of Israel saw the fire of God's presence descend on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 19 and verse 18. And after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, God spoke to the heads of the tribes and elders of Israel. And they said, and I quote, this is from Deuteronomy 5, they said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man. And check this out. They said, and man still lived. Psalm 24, 3 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It seems to me that this is a, a rhetorical question because no one can ascend the hill of the Lord and no one can stand in his holy place because only those with clean hands and a pure heart can stand in the presence of God. Can anyone say that they have a clean hands and pure hearts 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and even on the leap year? 
You see, the Old Testament priests, they, they had to consecrate themselves before entering into the tabernacle, entering into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And in this Ark of the Covenant, you had the, the, the staff of, 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 of Moses and Aaron and, and the Ten Commandments. And even then, even the, the Levites who were designated to be the priests of God, they, they were designated to be a priesthood throughout all their generations, and Aaron was designated to be the high priest. And even after all of the things that they have done with the clothes and that God said he wanted to wear them specific clothes and things that, that would be on the priestly robes, even then they were still in danger of death. So do you realize that we worship a God whose very presence can result in death? Now, why? Well, because he's holy, because he's pure, because he's righteous, and without God's covering, we are unholy, we are impure, and we're unrighteous. This is why the worship of God must be God-centered, because it is literally a matter of life and death. But before you run away in fear, before you say, oh, Andrew, you just preached one of them fire and hell brimstone sermons, I want to I pull you back in. And I want to agree that, yes, God is a consuming fire. Yes, God's presence literally melts the mountain like wax. And yes, there is always a potential of death in God's presence. And so taking all of that into consideration, there is a way to worship God without the fear of death or being burnt up by his holiness and glory. There is a path to the holy mountain to which no one can ascend, and it is Jesus Christ, the King of glory. The King of glory comes down from the holy mountain of God to bring mercy and forgiveness and assurance that God will not consume us with his holy fire. The King of glory covers us with his righteousness and makes us holy and acceptable to God. The king of glory brings an overwhelming confidence for us to literally run into the presence of God like children embracing their father. The king of glory touches the unclean and makes them clean. The king of glory invites children into the presence of God. Don't you see the scandal of this reality? Even Moses and Aaron and all the priests of Levi could not imagine a worship that looked like this. How could unclean, lay people, unordained priests, let alone children, enter the most holy place of God's presence and live? This is why worship must be Christ-centered. For without Christ, we have no right to enter into the presence of God. Jesus Christ makes worship acceptable, and the Holy Spirit makes worship transformative. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. You see, biblical worship is an embodied reality. Because of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's work, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they come and they live inside of us. The consuming fire that the children of Israel ran from in fear actually dwells in everyone who was placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? 
What does this mean for our corporate worship? It means that our preferences are secondary to God's glory and God's community, which is his temple and his dwelling place. I'll say that again. Our, uh, our preferences are secondary to God's glory and God's community, which is his temple and his dwelling place. So I talked about the, the, the awesome reality of God's glory, and, and, and so now let's look at God's temple because God's temple is now in our bodies. And so since that is a reality, you have to respect the worship of your brother and sister. Their worship is actually helping you to experience the presence of God in a new and more powerful way. This act of self-denial, putting God and others over your preferences, is the heart of worship. I'm going to read you a quote by a, a, a gentleman born in 1866 in, in, the, in Glasgow, Scotland. And, and what he says in, in 1902 applies in 2018. Check this out, and I'll, and I'll read this for you. He says, in all communion, there must be self-denial and a constant willingness to yield a little. Just as a mother worthy of the name loves to deny herself for her dear children, just as a husband will regard his wife in every choice he makes and in every plan, so in the fellowship of public worship there must be mutual consideration, constant willingness to, to, to forego a little for the sake of others whom Christ has died. The young have their rights, but they will not insist on them when they know it would vex and irritate the old. The old have their claims, but for the sake of the young, they will welcome what may not appeal to them. And when a hymn sung or when a word is preached that seems to have no message for one worshiper, the worsh that worshiper will always bear in mind that for someone else, that is the word in season. All that is of the essence of true worship and it calls for a little sacrifice you see we were meant to worship in community we were not meant to worship isolated from God's temple we were meant to worship God as a community and God never revealed himself to one person without revealing himself to entire community recently I had an agnostic gentleman he says he was trying to discount my belief in God and the fact that Christians, uh, we, we exclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father, right? So this brother said, he said, you know, what if, what if Allah appeared before you in a, in a dream or vision? What if, what if Allah said, Andrew, I am the one true God. You need to drop Christianity. That's, 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 that's not the real religion. You should follow me. And I said, you know what, brother, that's a good question. You know, I've had a lot of dreams and a lot of visions and... Um, I, I don't follow, I don't live by a lot of my dreams. I don't know about you, but we, some of us dream some crazy stuff. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't live my life by some, yeah, you, you know, Chrissy, I, I, I see that hand. Um, so my, 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 my point to him was, you know, if I had a dream like this or a vision like this, I had to, I had to verify it. I have to ask other people, you know, I had this crazy dream. That, that, have you ever had a dream like that? And then I, I, I said, well, I take comfort in, in Scripture because 
God not only revealed himself to Abraham and Moses in this isolated experience, but he revealed himself to entire community of people. You see, when Moses went on Mount Sinai, he brought 70 elders, uh, Joshua and Aaron. They were all up there with him. And the Bible says in Exodus 24 that they saw the feet of God, like, and it was blue like sapphire. And so it wasn't an isolated experience. And then on top of that, when, when, when God thundered like, with this mighty cloud and lightning, all of Israel were like, I don't want to go near that mountain. So this wasn't some isolated, esoteric vision. You see, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there were over 500 witnesses to attest to his resurrection. So when, when we say that we believe in the God of the Bible, this is not any esoteric angel that comes to us. It's been verified. It's been, it's been witnessed by a multitude of people. And so this is very important when we think about God revealing himself to us. Uh, I lost my place, oh Lord. I lost my place. It's, somebody say, help me, help him, Lord. Somebody say, help him. So, I, I, like I said, I've heard uh, people make references to Abraham and Moses and say that God, appeared to, uh, he, that God appeared to them like he appeared to Muhammad and Joseph Smith and others trying to discount the truth of Scripture or the gospel. Like, but God appeared not to one person, but to entire community. Look at the people and the children of Israel. God revealed himself to an entire nation so that they might worship him and also that their worship might reach the nations. Look at what God did to King Nebuchadnezzar. Y'all all know the story, King, if you've read your Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and the Babylonians had captured the Israelites. They plundered them and brought them into Babylon as slaves. And so in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image of himself and told everyone to, anytime they see the image of Nebuchadnezzar, to fall down and worship, to prostrate themselves, to proskuneo when they see this golden image. And if you didn't worship it, you would be thrown into the fire. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were all Israelites, told King Nebuchadnezzar that they would not worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar because the worship of God was primary. The worship of the God of Israel was the God that they would worship. So King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fire. But they were not burned because God, who is a consuming fire was with them. The fire was with them. So uh, they, they saw the angel and, and, and God sent his angel to protect them and they worshiped God in the midst of the fire. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't we throw three people in there? Why are there four people walking around and worshiping? Have you ever worshiped God in the midst of the fire? We need some fire worshipers in this place. And so King Nebuchadnezzar saw this, and, and he saw that God had delivered them in the midst of the fire. And you know what he did? He worshiped. He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except for their own god. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. My brothers and sisters, this is the king of Babylon worshiping God. 
This is the power of God's people coming together to worship. We're able to stand against any power, any government or authority that seeks to regulate us and our worship. We're able to be a visible witness in a way for those outside of the church to see the power of our collective worship and glorify God for it. We can lay down our preferences for a worship that meets our needs to a worship that blesses nations and kings. You see, when we, when we come together and worship, we are part of something greater than ourselves. We not only join in the heavenly host, but we join with brothers and sisters who have felt the hard hand of Pharaoh, of Nebuchadnezzar, of oppressive systems and powers and principalities, of, of depression and, and anxiety, of guilt and shame. Corporate worship announces the presence of God who was here to deliver entire nations and people groups. Corporate worship lifts us all into heaven, and corporate worship brings heaven down to earth. You see, don't despise God's temple standing next to you, because their deliverance could impact your deliverance. Their praise can impact your praise. Their worship can shape what you love about God. You see, God's temple is not defined by one person's experience. God dwells in homeless people, in people who don't even know what the future may hold, in people who are immigrants, and in people of all races and ethnic groups, and he desires that his temple would worship him corporately because he wants to announce to the world how majestic, how awesome, how powerful, how mighty, how holy, how true and beautiful and good he is. And one voice ain't enough. God is gathering the nations for a worship that would be so powerful that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So don't limit what God wants to do in you. Yes, he wants to use your gifts and your personality for his glory, but he also wants to stretch you. He wants the weak to say that I am strong. He wants the poor people to say that we're rich. He wants the foolish to shame the wise. He wants the lowly and despised to bring down those who are revered and in high places. He wants the intellectual to lift their hands and the charismatic to meditate in silence. He wants, the, he wants the traditional hymn-only people to sing contemporary songs, and he wants the contemporary singers to learn hymns. He wants the, the classical musician to learn jazz and the jazz musician to learn country. Why? You, heard, you hear that, Attila? So that no one may glorify themselves in his presence. The prophet Jeremiah said this, and I'll close. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise person boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty person boast in his might. Let not the rich person boast in their riches. But let him or her who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. I have two minutes left, so I'll close with a song that would summarize everything that I'm talking about. And you might have heard it, but I want you to listen to the words. 
The song goes something like this. Bow down and worship him. Worship him. Oh, worship him. Bow down and enter in. Enter in. Oh, enter in. Consuming fire, sweet perfume, his awesome presence fills this room. This is holy ground, so come and bow, bow down. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, that you are a consuming fire, and yet you're a sweet perfume that you beckon us into your presence, that you say enter in, enter into the holy of holies, enter into the place where, where the priest was scared to enter so that we can receive forgiveness and mercy in time of need, so that we can behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in your temple. Father, I pray that you would change the way that we worship. Let us see that it's not about us, it's not about our preference, but it's about your glory. And Father, I pray that as we worship together as a community, that we would realize that someone's praise might affect our praise, that someone's worship might affect my worship, that their deliverance can mean my deliverance as well. And so, Father, help us to worship as a community of God's people in Christ Jesus for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you all stand? We're going to put some of this into practice. At the end of the service, we'll sing a song that's going to invite you to worship with an embodied worship. It's going to ask you to put your hands together a little bit. But right now, we're going to 